At least it's not snow. Let's say that together. At least it's not snow. Does that make you feel better already? I'm actually just kind of stalling because I'm so intimidated by the book of Revelation. Probably more so than uh, any other um, place in the Bible, at least in the New Testament. Um, I think the reason for that maybe goes back to my days in seminary. I went to uh, Trinity Seminary, which is a seminary of the denomination, the Evangelical Free Church. And one of the things that I appreciated about Trinity Seminary was that it sort of didn't push denominationalism much. In fact, they had professors there from a lot of different backgrounds, and they would offer a lot of differing interpretations of passages of Scripture, including the book of Revelation. And uh, in some ways, I really appreciated that because it meant that I came away from seminary believing that good Bible-believing scholars uh, can come to different conclusions about some of the things that Scripture says. And I think that's been helpful to me all through my ministry. But in another way, um, it was a disadvantage, I think. It was a little like uh, a few weeks ago when we, when we taught about how to vote. And after that teaching, some people came up to me and said, I wanted you to tell me who to vote for, you know. And I sort of felt that way sometimes in seminary, especially with a book like Revelation. I just want you to tell me what it means, you know. Don't give me all these options. I want to know what it means, you know. I didn't get that. And so as a result of that, through most of my um, ministry, I've been a little hesitant to tackle the book of Revelation and have uh, preached from it very seldom. So it was with mixed feelings that we came to the end of this New Testament overview, and even writing the uh, the script for the video was kind of hard for me to do. And uh, thinking about what I was going to teach today, the natural tendency would be to say, well, I'll teach from those first three chapters, those letters to the churches. They're easy to understand, easy to interpret. They apply really well to churches today. And then I decided, no, that really is a wimpy cop-out. I need to jump into Revelation and talk about the beast with lots of heads and the harlot and all the, you know, the Antichrist and all that stuff. Let's just get into it. So I started reading through the book of Revelation and I got as far as chapter 5. And I was so struck in chapter 5 by the description of Jesus Christ. It moved me deeply. Probably none of you in here heard my teaching um, that I did on the uh, a couple of weeks ago about the I guess maybe it was last Sunday about the risen uh, Savior Jesus in uh, Philippians chapter two and Jesus incarnation on earth and um, anyway I was just so uh, moved by that teaching I got um, a little emotional shall we say I um, I cried a lot during the teaching and. And so then I come to this passage in chapter 5, and I'm feeling the same way. This is just amazing stuff about Jesus. So I decided that what I wanted to talk about today was this description of Jesus, particularly, that's found in Revelation chapter 5. So um, let me just say a word of introduction about this. We need to remember that what John is recording here, for the most part, in this bulk of the book, is he's describing a vision or visions that he had, that God gave to him. Kind of like out-of-body experiences that he had. 
And you know how hard it is to put into words something that you have experienced, that you want other people to be able to understand and experience too. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the uh, Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony concert at the Gallagher Blue Dorn, and it featured uh, Tchaikovsky's second piano concerto. It was dazzling. And I came home and I wanted to tell people about it. I just couldn't begin to put into words how, how I felt about that experience, how much it moved me. You know? And I, I ended up just saying, things, you should have been there. You should have heard it. You know? And I think John probably gets to that point sometimes. It's so hard to put into words what he saw, what he experienced, because a lot of that was stuff that nobody had ever seen or experienced before. It's hard to make sense of it. And John probably is frustrated and saying, I just wish you could have experienced, I wish you could have seen what I saw in heaven. So he puts it into words. There are going to be streets of pure gold. And we could say, wow, yeah, I can sort of understand. I can kind of picture what that's like. And he said, well, they were streets of pure gold, clear as crystal. Well, I mean, either they're going to be gold or they're going to be clear like glass. They can't be both. Ah, you should have been there. You know, you should have seen what I saw. He tries to relate to us what those experiences were like. So when we come to chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, it's very near the beginning of this vision that God has given to John. And John is transported to heaven. And what he sees in this chapter really is a heavenly vision. So this uh, part that we're going to be looking at is actually printed in your bulletin today, and we'll also have it on the screen, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read it to you as well. Maybe I should just say um, something, by the way. Um, you know, sometimes I will be teaching from a passage of Scripture, and you will look up, and it seems like my Bible is nowhere close to that. You know, I'm preaching from Genesis, and I've got my Bible open like here, you know, and and... I know that has caused some questions for in people's minds. The reason for that is I bought a giant print in IV, and I still can't read it without my reading glasses. <laughs> so I take my Bible to the copy machine, and I enlarge it, and then I put it in my Bible. I think God owns the copyright on it anyway, and he's not going to mind. So... Here I am reading from Revelation chapter 5, starting with the first verse. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept. Maybe that's the reason I like John so much, by the way. He cried a lot also. (laughs) I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Let's see if we can try to picture in our minds what John was picturing and experienced. The scene takes place in heaven. It's in the throne room of God. Or I guess it's easier for me to picture it kind of in a outside, you know, in this, in this huge area. But the center of focus is the throne, the throne of God. And God sits on the throne. And he is surrounded by, by beings. It talks about some beasts and it talks about the elders, you know, who are surrounding the throne of God. God in his glory and splendor. Just that alone must have been overwhelming to John. And then we notice that in his hand, God holds a scroll. Now remember, scrolls were the main way that things were written down in biblical times. They did have books, although they were very scarce. They were called, uh, it was called a codex or a codices. And they had some books, but generally speaking, things were written on scrolls. And a couple really interesting things about this scroll that God is holding in his hand. The first is that the scroll is written on the front and on the back side. Now, that's unusual in itself. Usually scrolls just had writing on one side and then they would be rolled up and the outside would be blank. This is written on the front and on the back. And I think the reason for that is, is to show that there's no room for anything else on the scroll. We find out later on in the book of Revelation that this scroll is the decree of God as to what's going to happen in the world. It records before they happen all of the things that God is going to bring to pass at the end of time. Amazing things that we read about in the book of Revelation and in other places in the New Testament. This is, this is God's final decree of what's going to happen. And nobody can add to it. There's no place to, uh, to write anything else. It's, it's closed. You, know? you can't say, well, I'll just jot this down on the back here. You, know? you can't do that because the back is covered with writing as well. The second unusual thing about this scroll is that it's sealed with seven seals. Now, what they would do, it was kind of like sending a registered letter or something today. The scroll would be rolled up and it would be tied with um, twine or something kind of like string or maybe a leather strap. And then where that's knotted, they would put a glop of, of warm wax. And then with a signet, sort of a press, or sometimes with like a signet ring that would have a distinctive carving on it, they would press that into the seal. So then, if you wanted to open the scroll... You had to remove the string, and if you removed the string, it would break the seal, and then people would know that the, that the scroll had been opened. This seal, this <laughs> scroll is sealed with seven seals, seven being the number of, of completeness and perfection. So this, this scroll is tightly sealed, you know, tightly sealed, and no one is able to open it. And to John, this is, terribly depressing to think that the decrees of this great and glorious God, the things that God has said will happen at the end of time, can't take place because there's nobody who is found who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals. And that's what John is crying about. 
In fact, it says they look everywhere for it. They check with every being in heaven, it says. I think that would be all of these angelic, you know, spiritual beings that God has created that, that things like angels and seraphs and, and cherubim and these incredible beings. N- nobody is found on earth. None of humanity. Of all the people that have ever lived or will live, no one is found who's worthy to open the scroll. Or under the earth, it says, which I think probably refers to like demonic forces. Nothing in, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is found who can open the scroll. And it kills John to think that this glorious God, his plan for the world where he's been taking all of creation, it can't happen because nobody is found who is worthy and able to open the scroll. And he cries. And then one of the angel, one of the elders says to John, don't, don't cry. Look, there is somebody who is worthy and able to break the seals and to open the scroll. And John looks. And who does he see? He sees one who is described as the line of Judah and the root of David. Now, those are references to the messianic prophecies about the Christ who would come. They are references to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when it speaks about the line of Judah, it's talking about this amazing person that God will someday send as the Messiah. Judah, you remember, was one of the, one of the tribes of Israel. It was the largest and most important tribe. The King David came from the tribe of Judah. And it talks about this one who will come, who is now able to open the scroll, as being at the root of David, a descendant of David. Now, does Jesus fit into those categories? Was Jesus from the tribe of Judah? Absolutely. Both his parents, his, his stepfather Joseph, his mother Mary, were from the tribe of Judah. Was he a descendant of David? Absolutely. Remember, that's the reason that they went to Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth, because they were from the family of David, and they went back to David's hometown for the census. So this is a a clear picture of Jesus as being the one person who is able to open the scroll, and it describes him as a lion. I've been um, playing... Bible trivia with people these, uh, these last couple of weeks, and I've been asking them the question, what animal is mentioned most in the Bible? And I've been getting some interesting uh, guesses. Uh, my guess would have been a lamb. You probably would have guessed that too, right? I mean, it talks about lambs a lot. I have people say snakes, uh, donkeys, you know, just all sorts of strange animals. The answer is, and you probably guessed it already from this passage, the lion. The lion is the animal that's mentioned most in the Bible. And here it talks about Jesus as being the lion of Judah. Now, they thought about the lion in the same way that we do today. And by the way, lions were fairly common in Israel at, 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 during biblical times. And you remember they show up periodically in, in Bible stories. The lion was the predator. He was the king of the beast. He was the one whom no one could conquer. So to call Jesus the Lion of Judah just lifts him up as this powerful, powerful king coming from from God's people, the Lion of Judah. The other thing it says is that he's a descendant of David as well. So here's this picture of Jesus and this exalted picture of him. And Jesus as the Lion of Judah 
And this, the root of David is able to go to the throne and to take the scroll and to open it. Now, finally, we're going to see what God has ordained for the end of time. The discouragement that John felt, I sometimes feel too. You know, when I see what's happening in the world, almost every election season, every time crises break out in the Middle East, every time I read about some dictator who's committing genocide in his country, when I read about earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes, when I hear about plagues that are wiping out tens of thousands of people, you know, whenever I read those kinds of things or think about them, I ask myself that question too. You know, does God know about this? Does God care? You know, is God in control? And this passage of Scripture answers those questions. Yes, God is in control and God is taking the world someplace. And it is all headed in a, in a certain direction. And now the things that God says will happen are going to take place because we've got somebody who is worthy and able to open the scroll. <sighs> what a relief for John and for us. And it seemed to me when I get to that point, it's like the story is over. You know, great. we've got the Lion of Judah. He's going to open the scroll, break the seals, and, and the, the beginning of the end has come. In fact, if you go just a couple chapters later, it talks about the first seal being broken. And in response to that, you know, Jesus comes as this, this great king on a white stallion. Seems like that could be the end of the story, but it isn't. The amazing thing is then that John looks and he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? He sees a lamb. It's like the lion has morphed somehow into a lamb. And what could be more different than a lion and a lamb? The lamb is the prey. The lion is the predator. The lion is fierce and aggressive. The lamb is meek and mild. You know, you read about people having dog fights or cock fights. You've never heard of a lamb fight, have you? <laughs> no, why? You know? Lambs just aren't like that. They are meek and gentle. And so when, when John looks and he sees who is actually taking the throne, it's not the lion, it's the lamb. And the elder has said to John that the reason the lion of Judah is able to take the scroll and to break the seals and to open it is because he has triumph. And the question we would ask then, how did he triumph? What did he triumph over? And the answer to that question is, he triumphed as the lamb. He triumphed not as the lion of Judah. He triumphed as the lamb that was slain. So the picture of the lamb even is amazing because it's not just a lamb. It is a lamb who has been slain. So when they would slay a lamb, like for the sacrifice, the person doing it would sort of straddle the, the lamb and pull up on its head and slit its throat and it would bleed out. And so John says the vision that he has of the lamb is a slain lamb. I assume that means the deep gash and wound in his throat, the blood you know, that has dripped down upon him. It's not a pretty picture, is it? The lamb has been slain. And he's not you know, lying on a, in a heap on the ground. 
He is standing beside the throne, and he is the one who is able to take the scroll and to open it. What did he triumph over? I just want to quickly mention three things. He triumphed over sin, he triumphed over death, and he triumphed over Satan. And I want to read you a couple of verses where those uh, declarations are made. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.10 is victory over death. This grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hebrews 2.14 is defeat of Satan. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The lamb who was slain defeats sin and death and Satan. He triumphs. The lamb who was slain takes the scroll and he is able to open it. I am deeply moved by this graphic description of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done. And apparently, all those in heaven are also deeply moved by it. Because when the Lamb takes the scroll, there's just this announcement in heaven, you know. You know, finally it has happened. Now the things that God said are going to happen are going to happen. Armageddon is going to take place and the Antichrist and, and the, the defeat of Satan and the, the return of Christ and Christ's rule and the new heaven and new earth. All those things are possible now because of the Lamb that was slain. And what do they do? They fall down on their faces before the Lamb. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you actually ever prostrated yourself before God in worship and praise and prayer? I think our bodies influence our minds so much and that there are ways, things that we can do that can help us in our worship and praise to God. Sometimes I think it's standing up, you know, probably never is it lying in your bed, which is a time that I think a lot of us think that's a good time to pray And I'm not saying it isn't, but uh, sometimes it would be being on our knees. Sometimes it would be standing, you know, lifting our hands to God. Sometimes I think it might be just falling on our faces before God. If you've never done that, you might consider making that a part of your praise and worship to God. So all of these beings now, these four beasts and the 24 elders, they fall on their faces before the lamb who was slain and they worship and they praise him and then as if that's not enough then they are joined by angels and it describes and did you catch that as thousands upon thousands and ten thousands by ten thousands of angels a huge amount. Now remember, John is seeing this. And he's just seeing this sort of limitless number beyond counting of angelic beings. And it's like they all want to get as close as they can to the throne and to the Lamb. And they encircle the throne. And they call out their praise. And it says that the, that the, uh, that the elders have have symbols, have uh, tambourines in their hands, and they have bowls of incense representing the, the prayers going of God's people going to the Lamb. And they're all praising God and worshiping Him for what He has done. 
in defeating sin and death and Satan and for being able and worthy to open the scroll. And so the way they praise Jesus at the end of this chapter is a way that I thought might be appropriate for us to praise Jesus as well. So we're going to do this kind of like a responsive reading. And so the words will be on the screen in the front, and I'm going to read the parts that are in black print, and you're going to read the parts that are in red print. And the parts you're going to read are the actual words that the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, the words that they sang and shouted as they praised God. Are you game to do that with me? Let's try it. So it, it says that you know they're they're all together worshiping and and they cry out uh, a new song. So let's let's go back to that previous verse, Johnny. Okay. So when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb. Now we're going to join together. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power Forever and ever. I mentioned that I had gone to the symphony concert. It was, as I said, it was, it was an amazing concert. When, when the pianist struck that last chord of that uh, piano concerto number two, the audience burst into applause. They rose to their feet in a standing ovation. I, you may not be aware, but for the last many years, I've been waging a one-person war on standing ovations. It's gotten so, you know, we give a standing ovation to every junior high band concert. You know, no matter what it is, everybody gets a standing ovation. It's a good way to affirm them. But what it's done is watered down a standing ovation to the point where it almost means nothing. But there are some times when you just can't help it. When you are so moved by something, there's no other way to express it than to jump to your feet and wild applause and cheering and bravo, you know. It seems to me like worthy is the lamb that was slain is hardly an appropriate response for the picture that John has just given us of the lamb of Judah and the lion who was slain. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to go through this one more time. And you're standing, go ahead and stand, you're standing as a way to honor Jesus Christ. Your, your standing in itself is, a, is an act of respect and honor to Jesus Christ. And when we call out to these things, let's really think about what it is that we're saying and say it you know, to, the, to the Lion of Judah, to the Root of David, to the Lamb that was slain.
Okay, Johnny, let's back it up and we'll start it again. Okay, so talking about the scroll. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we stand before you to honor you today. We're trying in our minds and in our hearts to imagine what it is that John saw that moved him so deeply. Thank you for recording that for us, for giving this glimpse of heaven, this picture of Jesus as a strong, powerful lamb whom no one can defeat or destroy, who has triumphed over sin and death and Satan. Thank you for this amazing picture of the Lamb who was slain, but who stands before the throne and takes the scroll and breaks the seals and opens it and brings on all of the things toward which God has been taking humanity from the very beginning. We praise you, Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah. Amen.